This podcast was recorded at the Battle of Ideas Festival at the Barbican in London. For those who haven't seen me earlier in the day, my name's Sandy Starr, and I work at the Progress Educational Trust, which is a charity that works in the fields of genetics and assisted conception and embryo and stem cell research. And I'm the convener of the uh, ethical battles in science and medicine strand that's been taking place in this auditorium throughout the day. Some of you will have seen me introduce the strand at the very beginning of the day, which feels like a very long time ago now. And some of you will have seen me chairing a debate about epigenetics that took place this afternoon. Uh, the debate we're about to have now is a little bit different. It's called Banning the Brave New World, the Ethics of Science. And what we're going to do is we're going to put away the red and yellow cards from earlier and have a less structured, more open-ended discussion. And the purpose of this is twofold. We're going to try to draw together the themes of the Strand, of earlier debates in the Strand, and grapple with anything outstanding. The second purpose of this debate is to look at how developments in biomedicine are understood and debated by the general public, and to look at how these developments relate to the broader democratic process, if indeed they, they do relate to it at all, and how they relate to political and moral deliberation. And we're very lucky to have a fantastic panel here uh, to guide us through these choppy waters. All of them are Battle of Ideas veterans who have been involved in the festival in one capacity or another in the past. And I'll introduce them to you very briefly. Uh, a fuller uh, account of their many accomplishments and qualifications can be found on the Battle of Ideas website. I'm going to introduce them all. I'm going to ask them all a few questions, get a conversation going, and then I'm going to bring you uh, the audience in as, as quickly as possible. And you can shape this discussion as well. First of all... On my far right, politically, spatially, who knows? Uh, we have Professor David Jones, uh, whom some of you will already have see, seen speaking this, uh, this morning at the debate on organ donation and death. David is the director of the Anscombe Bioethics Centre, which is one of the world's leading bioethics institutes, and he's written, edited and contributed to a number of books on bioethics and philosophy and religion, uh, most recently this one, uh, Chimera's Children, Ethical, Philosophical and Religious Perspectives on Human, Non-Human Experimentation a book that could not be more relevant uh, to the debate we're about to have. Uh, we then have, uh, on my immediate right, uh, another professor, uh, Professor Robin Lovell-Badge, who's a very eminent scientist uh, who, for nearly 20 years now, has been head of stem cell uh, biology and developmental genetics at the Medical Research Council's National Institute for Medical Research. Uh, he's frequently called upon to provide scientific advice to government and to parliamentary committees, and very significantly for today's discussion, he's a member of both of the Human Fertilization and Embryology Authority's working groups examining new techniques to avoid the transmission of mitochondrial disease. So last year he was a member of the working group which conducted a scientific assessment of the safety and efficacy of these new techniques. And this year he's a member of the working group that's examining the ethics and the public's understanding of these methods. And that's involved in a public consultation running at this very moment uh, into this issue. A man who understands... The issues we're about to discuss in the round. We then have uh, Ganesh Taylor, uh, who is a stem cell researcher at the University of Oxford. She's also been an observer uh, embedded in an IVF clinic, in much the same way that journalists are embedded in the military, but probably more frightening than that. We owe Ganesh a particular debt of gratitude. She, she, it was her who originally came up with the idea for this debate, together with her colleague Richard Swan. Richard's furious he can't be here right now. At this very moment, he's chairing a debate about the monarchy on the floor below. That's the battle of ideas for you in a nutshell. And then last but by no means least, we have uh, Ken McLeod, uh, who has been an invaluable friend to the Battle of Ideas Festival for many years now and who is an award-winning science fiction author uh, who's written around 14 novels, uh, recently spent a period as writer-in-residence uh, at the Economic and Social Research Council's Genomics Policy and Research Forum, 
and who's written uh, his latest novel, Intrusion, uh, which has been shortlisted for the Wellcome Trust Book Prize, deservedly so, I, I very much recommend. Uh, an excellent novel in every respect except one. It's bad for your blood pressure. Uh, <laughs> the situations it depicts are liable to make your blood boil. It's been a long day, and there's a lot on the table we can discuss, but I'm going to begin by asking each of you a question on a subject that we're all interested in from one perspective or another in our day jobs, the human embryo. And I'm going to begin with you, David. And I'm going to begin by asking you about the way that embryo research and fertility treatment are regulated uh, in this country. Last year, I saw you give a very thought-provoking uh, discussion in which you criticised the Warnock Settlement. For anyone who doesn't know, this is the framework uh, for embryo research and fertility treatment. It emerged from a, a committee of inquiry chaired by Baroness Mary Warnock in 1984. It's subsequently been promulgated through the Human Fertilisation and Embryology Acts of uh, 1990 and 2008, and David does not like it. David, why is the Warnock Settlement problematic? Uh, yeah, if you, if you don't mind, if this is unstructured, if I can go back a couple of, of, of by all uh, means um, stages in, in in the thought process, and also I should say for, uh, before I start that that I speak for myself and for for no one else, particularly when I'm being provocative, as I will be at the end. Uh, I wanted to say uh, be provocative be, now, please. <laughs> I wanted to start with something less contentious, I hope uncontentious, then move to something slightly more contentious, and then be provocative. So, uncontentious. Uh, the subject is called the ethics of science. Uh, but I think the proper object of science is actually the true rather than the good. The natural sciences are various disciplines which seek a better understanding of the world. So I don't think, uh, and I don't think there is such a thing as unethical knowledge. So I, I don't think that uh, we should think of the ethics of science understood as a body of knowledge. But there is the ethics of research, what scientists do in getting to the knowledge, and there is the, eth uh, the ethics of application, the ethics of engineering. And both of those things are reasonable to look at the ethics of. So it's not the ethics of science per se, it's the ethics of research or the ethics of application, mm -hmm. both of which are, are reasonable. I think most people would think that, there's, that, that these, are, these should be ethical in, uh, endeavours. Second point, a little more contentious. I would suggest that when thinking about the application of technologies, uh, including biotechnologies in society, there is an analogy between the relationship between the technologist and the public and the relationship between a doctor and a patient. Uh, the doctor has his proper area of expertise and, for the most part, has the patient's best interest at heart. But uh, the, the patient is required to consent before treatment. Why is that? Well, partly because the patient will suffer the consequences, will take the risks, uh, but partly also because the patient has an understanding of the good, what's good for that patient, which might not overlap exactly with the doctors. The doctor might think they know what's best for the patient, but there is a, a dialogue to be had between patient and, and doctor about what is best for the patient, mm -hmm. in which the doctor is not a moral expert. And that's the other reason why we need consent. Now, I would say there is an analogy here between the way in which technology should be controlled by democratic process, partly because the public will suffer the consequences or enjoy the consequences, just like a patient, and partly because uh, technologists are not necessarily moral experts in the good. So if for, the, for, for similar reasons that we should we think about consent with a with patient, we should think of democratic engagement. Okay. Right. Thirdly, and, and more quickly. Um, sorry, quickly, I think that the way in which we actually make decisions in regard to the embryo, that's only one area of biotechnology, but in regard to the embryo is, is, is by using the, the Warnock Report, which uses a concept of the special status of the embryo, which in the way that it's employed seems to be about 
the embryo having a certain status which needs to be protected, and that was given, it has been given by successive governments and parliaments as the reason why we have the Human Fertilization and Embryology Authority. But if you look at how the human embryo, the HFEA, if you look at how the HFEA actually functions, it doesn't, I would suggest, function to protect the embryo. It actually functions to protect people's feelings who are concerned about the embryo. That's people's feelings like me. And I frankly find that insulting. I would far prefer if the HFEA didn't exist. I would far prefer if those sort of decisions were not made by a body which seems to be representing the embryo but isn't in a rather dishonest way. And I would say that the problem is it suppresses, it suppresses debate. So even though getting rid of it might make things a bit more uh, libertarian and might make things happen which I don't agree with, I think that it's actually the HFEA as it functions at the, possible, at the moment is a kind of disingenuous charade. Okay. And, and an insult to participative democracy. So, uh, Robin, <laughs> you are on the Horizon Scanning Committee of the HFEA. You've been involved in uh, both these working groups on mitochondrial exchange techniques, mm-hmm. and uh, including the one that's currently involved in the public consultation. So are you a part, a willing part, of a disingenuous charade that's an insult to participative democracy? <laughs> Ooh, how am I going to answer that one? No. <laughs> I, I disagree with lots of things you just said, of course. Um, the HFEA is charged by government to, to look after this whole area of research and clinical practice. They are also charged by government on occasions to try and understand what the public think, thinks about these areas of, of research and clinical practice. And in my view, they, uh, they take extraordinary lengths to actually distance themselves, themselves from the outcome of any public engagement exercise. So, for example, with this whole um, current uh, thing about mitochondrial uh, transfer, so people will understand that the, the concept here is that there are some women who, who carry um, abnormal mitochondria uh, mitochondria have their own little bit of DNA that encodes genes essential for production of energy in cells. So often the, these women will have children who are carrying that abnormal mitochondria, so mitochondria only come from the mother, um, and those children can be suffering from horrible diseases because of the consequence of not having sufficient energy in particular tissues like brain and, and muscle. And so it's proposed, and there's experiments to suggest that you could get around this by transferring the nuclear genetic material, which has all the genes that encodes our personality traits, etc., you could transfer the nuclear genome from an affected egg with abnormal mitochondria into one uh, that has normal mitochondria that don't carry any um, genetic problems. And so that's the the basis behind this public consultation. And really what the HFEA were charged to do was, first of all, gather the evidence in terms of the science... (coughs) We had people on the committee who weren't keen on this. We had people on the committee who were keen on it. Uh, we took evidence from a wide range of people uh, from all different views. The current process of, of the public engagement exercise, which is taking many different forms, um, including an, an online consultation, which you should all go and look at and complete. Um, uh, again, the steering group has a wide range of views on it. So it ranges from people who, uh, who have... Uh, who represent uh, organizations that are, that are helping to look after kids born with these severe mitochondrial diseases, all the way through to uh, Josephine Quintavalli, for example, who is um, Catholic and is, and is um, uh, pro-life. 
So it has a wide range of views, and the, the way uh, we work on this committee is to try and make sure that all the information that's going out there for the public consultation is as neutral as possible. So I'm, I have agreed on many occasions with Josephine Quintavales, you'll be interested to know, on some aspects because I felt that uh, the information that was going, going to go out was not neutral. So okay. we make that happen. Okay, that, that raises a number of, of interesting questions, which I'll park for a moment, uh, because I'd, li I'd like to turn to you, Ganesh. Uh, I know from talking to you, you have a particular interest in the possibilities for in vitro-derived gametes, um, sperm or eggs that are made in the laboratory and that are made from uh, stem cells, uh, which might come originally from our skin rather than from our genitals. Uh, but could you explain for us, before we go any deeper, <laughs> what this means, what it entails? Okay, yeah, I'll, I'll do my best. Essentially, you might, you might have heard some of this over the course of today's strand. Basically, when an embryo is first formed, it is a single cell made of the oocyte and the sperm fused together. And as time passes, it splits into multiple cells, and then eventually these cells start deciding to go down particular lineages, as it's called. So they become different sort of layers originally, a bit like how gravy settles with the fat on top and the bits in between and that kind of thing. And then from there, they go on to sort of the middle bit will contain your organs, for example, or the outer bit will become your skin. And um, we discussed epigenetics in one of our sort of strand, um, debates earlier today. And epigenetics is the way that the genome, um, which is the sort of collection of all the genes that every single cell in, in your body contains, well, nearly every single cell in your body anyway, um, has exactly the same set of instructions. So it's the, the equivalent of having everyone having the highway code at home. But how you interpret it sort of comes down to your reading of that. And how that reading is done is uh, epigenetic modification. And so there's this um, increase, uh, recently anyway, over the last 20, 30, 40, whatever years, to find out how cells go down these particular lineages. And the idea is, if you know how it goes one way, then you can strongly encourage cells to go in the other direction. So the, the thought is, I could take... If something happened to me and I was unable to have children in the future, but we'd learnt sufficient about um, regulation and chromatin and uh, epigenetics, all these long, complicated words which basically mean why does a cell that originally is just one cell become all these amazing cells that do lots of different kinds of things. And then we could put it in a dish throw things at it that makes it sort of essentially forget that it was a skin cell or a toe cell or whatever it is and revert back to its original unmarked, unsullied state, i.e. back to what I would have been like as a single-celled embryo in my mother. And then if you know how to push it in the opposite direction, you'd know how to push it back down the way you want it to. And so we would then be able to sort of provide signals to make it become, in my case, an oocyte, or in a man's case, obviously, a sperm. And the idea is to, if you could do that, if we could do that, um, I would be able to have children at any point in my life. In fact, if someone took my skin cells and I died decided later on that maybe I should have had children or something, then that could also be done. And it, it sort of raises an interesting situation where anyone of any age, of, in any condition, can have children. And so, yeah, that was... I know of several examples, uh, a lot of them in Israel, of people being conceived with the stored uh, sperm of the deceased 
It's mm. quite a contentious uh, legal area, and I can Im- just imagine the floodgates um, uh, if, if in vitro-derived gametes become, become possible. But I'm going to ask you one more question, mm-hmm. uh, Ganesh, which is... I'm, I'm very excited for what you just described. I, I love the idea. You know, the human reproductive cycle moving outside the body, you know, fantastic, bring it on. Now, <laughs> let's say... And there have been various attempts to do this, and I don't think they've yet... Well, eggs is very complicated, but they've not succeeded in creating viable uh, human sperm that could even fertilise an egg, much less have all the epigenetics taken on board to result in a functioning and and a healthy person. Let's say that they do, the thought experiment. You know, it's actually Robin who usually is called upon to pour water uh, on the claims that it's been done, because he he knows his onions uh, figuratively and biologically. But um, onions not biological. Uh, well, you, I imagine you know a bit about onions either way. Um, okay, so we do this. We, we create it. We create uh, a viable uh, in vitro derived human sperm or eggs. Robin says it's really been done. They're not making up this time. Uh, committee like the one he did with the HFEA says it's safe. It's efficient. Uh, should we do it? How do we decide? Should we, should we do what's being done with the mitochondria, get the HFEA to run a public consultation? Do we put it to a referendum or a vote? What do you think should happen? I am of the opinion that a public consultation would actually be a good thing. I think uh, a leap like that would fundamentally change what we as humans and humankind and mankind are doing on the face of this planet, how long we're going to last, and how we will have essentially taken evolution into our hands, because that... That is it. That is the ultimate thing that we can do. Nature no longer will decide when we reproduce, and our bodies are now no longer slaves to the germline. This you must reproduce at some point to propagate your genes. We we have the ability to pause, like a virgin TV box thing, and just rewind and go back and reinstate and all that kind of thing. Um, and so I think it would be very essential to talk to everybody, and it. Okay. Call, call me an idealist, but I think it, it's entirely... So we'll come required. to the subject of, of what happens when some people aren't happy about it. Do you ignore them? Do you, you know, what, what do you do? Do you say tough... I mean, at this point, it's a good time to bring in uh, Ken uh, and his novel, uh, Intrusion. For those of you who don't know, uh, I think this is a depiction on the cover of... Um, one. There are many interesting aspects of this book we could discuss, but one of the main uh, aspects of the plot is this, is this pill called The Fix. And in the world of this novel... Uh, Pregnant women are all but compelled early in pregnancy to take this pill. And through a series of um, subtle but thoroughgoing uh, genetic and epigenetic modifications, it removes many of the things that would adversely affect the health of the resulting child. So it 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 results in healthy children or children that don't don't have health problems they might otherwise have had. And we can talk about that, but what interests me is what happens in the novel to those who do not want to take this. And what happens is that um, the... Well, I'll actually let you discuss it, Ken, and I'm also interested in, in how this relates to the present day, how you extrapolated, if indeed you did, from our current circumstances. What happens to those who don't want to take the fix? Yeah, well, I, the way I set it up as a thought experiment was to make sure that no animals or embryos were harmed in the thought experiment. So I set it up as entirely based on synthetic biology. The fix is, a, is a, a pill or a device, if you like, that m- makes use of no animal or human tissue. And it, it, I could have given some hand-waving about epigenetics and so forth if I had been more, um, more You're ruthless You're being too about modest, it. you did. Yeah, I did, did I? Oh, good. Um, the, 
The reason why it becomes contentious in the story is that I, what I tried to do was to, to bracket off the obvious religious objections and to say for the sake of the story that the major religions had no problems with it, but that some of the minor religions did. And although it's not compulsory, it's, there's pressure to take it on the pregnant woman. And the exemptions, there are exemptions built in to the law that makes it, permit it, permits it. And initially, these exemptions were put in to protect the doctors, so that the doctors would not be sued if they enabled, allowed a woman to decline, because she had this, um, these conscientious objections. And as the pressure builds to make it effectively compulsory, to say that for a woman not to take this pill, to take the fix, is harming the interests of her future child, yeah, that's where it becomes a matter of public interest, then these exemptions still allow a get-out, a conscience clause. But the heroine and protagonist of the novel refuses to pretend to have any religious beliefs that she doesn't have. She also refuses to have any moral ideology that she doesn't have because she doesn't know what the basis of her objection is. She just doesn't want it. And in that sense, it's a a deeply um, reactionary and irrational book and a deeply irrational and reactionary stance that she takes. And in some ways, I don't sympathize with her. I I would, metaphorically speaking, have... Given her, if she was a friend of mine, I would have sort of given her a good shake and said, come on now, be sensible. But being her um, creator, I obviously can't do that. I can only follow through the logic of what she's thinking, and I, I find myself very sympathetic to her, and I wanted the reader to be sympathetic to her. And I think in some ways what it's about is the issues not so much of bioethics uh, as of the rights of individuals to make a choice without having to justify them or without having to come up with an improved justification, especially not from a, a justification from a menu of approved choices. You know, oh, I'm a sedivacantist, I'm a, a Moravian Baptist or whatever, and therefore I can legitimately object. Or I'm a, a green eco-freak and, you know, a, a goddess worshipper or whatever, and therefore I can object. No, she, we, we have to be able to object to things simply because we do, on the basis of our own free will, as we were discussing on one of the earlier panels, not on this strand. And I think the reasons why, how, where I projected it from was not so much from existing and available technology, although that had some effect, because I was fascinated by the possibilities of synthetic biology, but from the ways in which you can see now how the... As soon as a woman becomes pregnant, she becomes public property. She becomes an object of public concern. She becomes a potential site of intervention. Well-meant intervention, of course, often ones that are unobjectionable kinds of intervention. But nevertheless, they, are, they have to be seen as, as such and, each, and you know, considered and not simply taken for granted. And secondly, the, way, the increasing extent to which what we would, what should be moral decisions and argue, moral arguments are replaced by medical arguments, or rather that the medical, medical moral issue of health becomes the overriding factor in moral arguments, and it trumps everything else, notably the freedom of individuals. And we see this in very, 
often in very small things that are individually trivial, like restrictions on sugar and salt, let alone mm. things like mm. the smoking ban. And if you object to the fact that KP nuts are more or less mandated to put less salt on their peanuts, mm. and you can't have the good old hit of a a good smack of salted peanut in your mouth when you particularly want a salty peanut. You're a, you're a crank, okay. I'm a crank, I admit it. But I, I do object to that. And it's a, that, the endless accumulation of tiny things like that gives rise to a, a world that's regulated without any rationale other than this medicine-trumping morality mm-hmm. rationale. No, that's uh, admirably clear. So we have a number of different perspectives uh, on the table uh, about the relationship um, well, between science and medicine and what we choose and want and tolerate uh, collectively um, and individually. You can think of many directions I'd like to develop that in, but I, I will bring the audience in in a second and encourage you to you know, ask whatever you want. And I, I did mean it when I said pull things from earlier in the day, so we don't just have to talk about the embryo. If you want to relate it to uh, healthy eating, to the whole epigenetic concept of don't harm your child or your grandchildren's health, uh, or anything else that's been discussed today, please do. Does anyone want to pitch in at this stage from the floor with a question or comment? Uh, thanks to both David and Ken for the, the defence of sort of autonomy and consent that you've given there, because I think that's really refreshing. Just sort of jumping back to the debate we had, I think the previous one, on sort of evidence-based policy type areas, I think that's an interesting phrase that's used because it's obviously based on evidence-based medicine, but it lacks the thing in medicine which is we have a a body of natural scientific knowledge about how the human body works, but the patient can consent or, you know, not to whatever treatment. Whereas in evidence-based policy, it's, we know about politics, so shut up, basically. Here's the the policy uh, ideas that we have, and we have done some studies, and we know what we're doing, and it's an attempt to remove consent and democracy from it. So I just, yeah, kind of reasserting that aspect, which is central to medicine, that is trying to be denied in politics currently. So, yeah, just, just throwing that in. Thank you. Uh, Tony Gillen, I think this is a great concept, this session. My question is, uh, what is the, the difference between morality and ethics, if there is one, and what are we to make of the growth of ethics over the last few decades? Because my concern is that, certainly in the way in which it's practised at the moment, ethics seems to embody a, an expert view and an expert view that can then be imposed on the morality of others. So, for example, and sometimes in quite subtle ways, I'm very struck in IVF, for example, uh, we've, we've removed donor anonymity, and there's now a big push to say, for the psychological welfare of the child, parents need to be counselled uh, uh, that they must tell their children mm. how they were conceived, and so they receive counselling. And often in these spheres counselling becomes a, a next step from some of the ethical questions in which people are encouraged to make a certain decision uh, which perhaps may go against their own instinctive morality. Mm-hmm. Um, so I would like to know, uh, is there a difference between morality and ethics and is ethics uh, becoming too expert and possibly too uh, manipulative? If we could pass the microphone back here, I'll use my prerogative just as it's moving... I mean, very interesting question that. You know, we have a, we have a name for mandatory counselling where I work. It's called instruction. It's not actually counselling. In, in Ken's book, there's a theory of the, is it the free social market? The free and social market. The free market, and social yeah. market is, is, a, is, a, is a model whereby uh, you make decisions on people's behalf 
that they would have made had they been in possession of all the correct information. Um, <laughs> or as it's otherwise known uh, uh, nowadays, you know, informed ch choice. Uh, ver very interesting concept. Anyway, please, sir. Yes, I'm Roger Gina-Sorolla. I was on the previous panel. I also do research on moral emotions, including most prominently moral disgust and anger. Therefore, I was intrigued by the sentence in the abstract of this panel, uh, substantive moral objections being condescendingly dismissed as the irrational yuck reaction. And I would like mm. maybe uh, some of you to expand on that, just bearing in mind that there are some views of morality that say morality is based on emotions, and if you don't have the yuck, the grr, uh, the awe reaction, then you don't have much of morality at all. There's a short essay by George Orwell called The Prevention of Literature, and Ken's presence on the panel as a writer uh, made me think of it. And the point Orwell makes in that essay is that a writer can't survive uh, in a totalitarian uh, state. An artist can't survive in a totalitarian state. And that's because the... Um, project of imagining and saying something about the human world uh, requires the freedom of the author to, to, to make that happen, to bring that something into the world. He then goes on to contrast the freedom, the, ne the freedom necessary for an artist or a writer uh, with the ability of scientists to get along relatively happy without being in a free society. Because, and I might push your argument slightly further, David, I don't think science is to do with the truth. Uh, it's certainly not to do with the good. It's certainly not to do with the truth either. I think it's in the business of constructing verifiable hypotheses about the uh, material world. But that's not a matter of the truth. Right? And that's why scientists in a totalitarian society can operate testing hypotheses such as does 2 plus 2 equal 5. Now, the reason I bring that up is to pose the question, and I don't think David's question's really been answered where we started, uh, which is the use of consultations and expertise and so on to massage and regulate uh, the public. Doesn't this problem only come up for us, asking about the morality of it, because of a relative disconnect of people in engaging themselves in a free society? I.e., are we asking this question, what can we get over on the people and what can we not? What might they object to and what, what, what might they not? From a kind of up here point of view... How much science can I get that down them today? Uh, what can we get away with, in a, in a way? Sort of the question. How do we manage the public? Okay. I'm it's only because we've already taken a view that the public are something of a problem. So are we asking these questions about moral regulation? Simply, is it an index of lack of freedom? Okay. I'm gonna, I've seen some more hands, but I'll come back to the panel quickly first. I'll start with you, Robin, and I'm going to put you on the spot and uh, have you respond to the as a stem cell, uh, you know, as a, as, a, as a biologist in stem cell biology, respond to the philosophical, <laughs> philosophically discursive point that's just been made. But in, in Robin's defence, before I put you on the spot, I will say, um, like, like David, like others in the audience, I am sceptical about the consultation exercise and its role in democracy. But of all the scientists I know, Robin is the one who always, is always up for telling it to the public as it is. And every time someone else comes on board and goes, oh, they won't, will they like that? Or, you know, he goes, no, you've got to tell it as it is. Um, so you've, uh, although I, I have my scepticism about some of the processes you're involved in, I, I, I certainly think you're, you're, um, uh, you have a good, good political, what I think of as good political integrity as well as your scientific expertise. However, this, this, these consultations are problematic. This, this whole scenario is problematic, or is it? 
Well, okay. Uh, thank you for the nice comment. Um, I think it's very good that people challenge the whole idea about it, actually, because I think you're not going to, you're not going to get uh, a buy-in if people are suspicious of a consultation. Um, okay. So, I mean, if, you know, politically, I don't I have no idea what the Minister of Health is going to decide at the end of this consultation. But he's going to have, he's going to be presented all sorts of diff evidence from different sources, so the science... Nuffield Bioethics Council, who did a pure ethics analysis, yeah, yeah. they're going to have this, the results of this public consultation, which has been done in various ways, but the idea being to provide information so that people can, based on the information they're given, which varies in quantity according to the different approaches that have been taken, uh, can, make a, um, can come up with a view mm -hmm. as to whether this should be allowed to take place clinically rather than just for research purposes which is currently going on. And he's also going to take probably account of political and other issues. Okay, let me ask you something. Another problem. Let so, me ask you something though. What, what does that mean for the Secretary of State for Health to take account of your views, possibly mine, possibly David, those of Josephine Quintavalli? I mean, mm -hmm. it, it seems certainly my views and probably yours, I imagine, and, and those of Josephine and those, those of David, you know, are implacably, intractably opposed. What does it mean to take account of them all and come to a decision? Does that actually mean anything? <laughs> hmm. The reason why, okay, the reason why I think it's important to do this is so that the public understand what's happening and what it's about in a way that, okay, you can take another completely different example of genetically modified crops. Mm -hmm. Okay. That, as far as I'm concerned, was a complete disaster, as a scientist, was a complete disaster because there was no attempt at proper um, involving the public in a decision by giving them information first. So they were faced with companies doing things which none of us were happy about. Um, and on the basis of that, the political decision was, no, we don't do that. We don't go there at all. And I think that's... So not going through this exercise is a mistake. Uh, we go through this exercise because the, the, the more uh, everyone knows about at least aspects of the technology, the more they're likely to you know, uh, appreciate when or, when or not it should be used. And this is important, I think, for the Secretary of Health to come to a decision about um, whether or not it should be allowed uh, and how it is going to be regulated. So it's providing information that decides how something is going to be regulated. He doesn't, you know, he can just say yes in these circumstances with the appropriate consent, it can go ahead. Right. He doesn't have to say yes or no. Okay. I'm going to turn to you, David. Um, there's a lot of things you can respond to. You can respond to what Robin's just said. You can respond to the charge that, uh, you know, science isn't about truth. I mean, uh, you, you know, a lot of us sympathise with what you've said about uh, the HFEA. Certainly, I don't think any quango has accountability commensurate with its power and so on. But let me defend it a little bit as well. I mean, in, if there weren't this haven of, of the Warnock settlement... If the moral state of the embryo was a, was a subject of continuing political contestation in the Department of Health on the floor of the House of Commons, I mean, uh, nothing could proceed. Uh, you would not have taken a, a definitive decision whereby uh, there could be uh, organised fertility treatment and embryo research in any consistent way. Would you not then just have a, a presumption in, uh, in the opposite direction of that things can't, can't proceed because things keep impeding them? No, it, well, I, I'm, I'm sure within, within the political settlement that we have in this country, they would proceed 
I mean, I've no, I think that in, in general with consultations, and people should uh, think back to various consultations they might have known or been interested in on a wide variety of subjects, on nuclear power or on motorways or on, on, on runways or on... Uh, when you have a public consultation, it seems to me there's, there's typically two, two sorts broadly. That where a decision has not yet been taken and where people's views are taken because there is real perplexity and people are actually involved with the decision which hasn't actually been taken. And I've known, I've known this. I mean, I'm, not, I'm not universally cynical about consultations. Sometimes the people who are, have to make the decision are a bit perplexed themselves and they want, they want to, be, to be sure which way to go. Mm. And there are other consultations which are essentially public relations exercise where people know what they want they're very clear what they want, but they want to get the public on side. That's called informing the public, and uh, it, before they have their view. And and we we've all known. Cons- I mean, I'd be surprised if there is somebody, nobody here who who th- can think of a, a consultation like this. I would say, with regard to this present consultation on on mitochondrial transfer, that it was announced by the Secretary of State on the same day that the Wellcome Trust announced that they would actually fund it, and on the same day as the the Nuffield Council announced that they were going to have this consultation. Now, I think that without any uh, casting any aspersions about the Wellcome Trust or any aspersions about the Nuffield Council, I think from the Secretary of State's point of view, I would be absolutely amazed. I mean, I would... (laughs) I would bet a large amount of money uh, against him coming out against this. I, 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 it's just so, it just runs so counter to so many things. To me, this is, this, is a, this is a consultation where the government have clear views about what they want. Now, and also, I think that, I mean, I have scepticism about the, the HFEA in general as a body to take this. But, but, but I think there are, some, there are different kinds of consultation, and I think you can sometimes tell... Uh, and, and I would say, make your own mind up about this, but, but look at some of the characters involved about setting it up in the first place. Well, I only wish things were that organised. <laughs> I'm very flattered by the... Some, uh, David's alluding to some of my colleagues, and I only wish we, we had the wherewithal to be as conspiratorial. Um, we, might, we might do rather better if, if we were. Um, I'll turn to you, Ken. You can respond to whatever you like, but you've done a fantastic thought experiment. Like you, you know, I'm sympathetic with the protagonist in some ways, not in others... How does this relate to vaccination? Should people be compelled to take this thing? So, fantastic thought experiment. When it comes to this question of how in in political life, whether and how we consult the public on far-reaching therapies and and breakthroughs, do you have any thoughts on how it should be done or what anyone else has said? Well, um, I think I would agree with David on the importance of consulting the public. I do, however, there are two, two points here. One is that I think if we examine his analogy between of the doctor-patient relationship with the technologist-public mm-hmm. relationship, I don't quite think that democratic consultation works in, exa- in the same way. As obviously, you're a philosopher, you're well aware of this, yeah. and as the same way as individual consent. No. And it, it, is, it, it makes it an intrinsically more problematic process. The, the other one is that, according to the social scientist that I um, was embedded with, as it were, I'm a sort of embedded writer, in the same way as Ganesh is an embedded um, clinic, clinic. Yeah. Yeah. that often the more the public knows about it, in the case of GM, what happened was that the public was consulted and was informed, and what they found was that the better informed people were about GM, the more they were opposed to it. 
And when they, when they did set up travelling roadshows and so on to promote GM and explain it to the um, baffled, ignorant, suspicious public, and the more they explained it, the more suspicious and baffled and hostile the public got. Which raises an interesting question of at what point, if at all, um, the, the people who make these decisions should say, stuff the public, we're going this way. Part of me would like them to do that, I'm ashamed to say, but uh, Ganesh, I mean... We were talking before, you know, you spoke poetically, in fact, I really liked it, about um, the far-reaching consequences of, of in vitro-derived gametes, you know, Promethean flame you know, and all that. <laughs> How are we going to decide whether or not to proceed? We'll, we'll get the edge of theatre on a consultation. I mean, <laughs> is it not of, of greater world historical importance than that? I, I think back to IVF, and an amazing uh, leap was taken with IVF. They, there comes a certain point, no matter how much scientific evidence you've got, I'm, I'm sure everyone will back me up, where you take a leap of faith with things that have ramifications for future generations. You know, you, you're never, uh, you never eliminate all the risks. At a certain point, you take a leap of faith. With IVF, that, that decision was made very contentious at the time. It's hard to, but anyway, do you, do you really think that there's a mechanism whereby the public can be uh, uh, meaningfully involved before taking a, a decision as far-reaching as removing the reproductive cycle from the human body? Well, I think before everyone else started talking, I would have said yes, but now I'm feeling a bit more cynical. <laughs> I, just, I just think it has to be done. You, you can't. You can't not, really. I mean, if, if we're going to say that the HFEA doesn't do the job, and then something else has to be found, because you can't, you can't make such a big, important decision about humanity just by, oh, you know what, we'll, we'll just do it and see what happens. If no-one's willing to take the bull by the horns, I can see that happening at some point, because in the end, things like that will just get done. I believe. Okay. And that's why people have started making these sorts of legislative blockades or whatever you want to call them, to, or, or, start even, or why we're even talking about it, because it's becoming increasingly a potential reality and people are aware of the fact that, well, whether we talk about it now or we don't, at some point someone's going to turn around and say, well, guess what, guys, we're ready. We've, we've done it in mice, we've done it in chimpanzees, we've done it in horses, we've done it in everything else. All that's left is... Is humans, how about it? So I'm, I'm not going to profess to have an answer because, again, like I said, I'm a bit of an idealist. I'm the kind of person who would sit down and get a commission and say, let's go out, let's talk to people, let's see what they think. Um, I mean, would you take no for an answer? People don't want it. So you go, OK. They don't well, want it. OK, so maybe not a consultation, then maybe a dialogue. <laughs> <laughs> Do you work for the HFEA? Maybe, maybe I will. <laughs> you will soon. OK, I'm going to go back out to the audience again. Well, mine's very quick, and okay. I feel like the stupidest person in the room, but can somebody just quickly explain, on this very piece of technology, what, what is the yuck? What should we be nervous about? OK. Um, are you talking about mitochondria? Yeah, OK, we'll come back to that. Yeah, so I, it's a public consultation thing. You know, I've spent all day saying, you know, we must trust the public, and they're smart, and they can do this, they can understand stuff, and now I'm sat here thinking, well, wait, what, what's... What's wrong with this idea, you know? And I'm thinking about going home and, and talking to my mum about total brain failure and, and how, in the event of me being in a coma, if I've got total brain failure, then it's okay to take out my heart. But if it's anything less than that, okay, mum, then, then don't let them take out my heart. And it's, I don't think my mum's going to get it, you know? I just have, <laughs> I have a slight nagging suspicion that this is not quite going to connect with it. And it's not 
just it's not because you're stupid as it happens. I mean, it's just because he's not engaged in these kinds of discussions, not engaged in these debates, not politically engaged, socially engaged. I mean, you know, like she's kind of disengaged. And a lot of the public seem to be like that. You know, it's like we don't live in a very political period. We don't live in a period where we're discussing very much at all. You know, we're really weird coming to the battle of ideas every year and doing this. You know, we're not normal. <laughs> and so I'm wondering who, who are the people that we're, we're talking to in these consultations. I'm guessing they're not really very normal as well. And then I'm wondering how it is that we, like, basically yeah. do this properly. Um, and this just doesn't seem like we're doing it yeah. properly. Okay, go on, Marilyn. I, I, I've just got an impression with this, um, these uh, um, gametes outside the body. There's a sense of you doing it because you can. And I'm just thinking, why would you want to, you know? I mean, I can understand women having chemotherapy, but one can remove the eggs in advance. Similarly, sperm can be stored already. I mean, you say, well, it has been done in mouse, yes, and, and development has... Is, 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 has gone on for a certain distance with artificial gametes. But I just don't understand they can do it in mouse and then they do it in horses and, of course, we'll do it in humans. But why? Because you can? Um, that worries me. I wanted to hold, say something about... I did go to the cow embryo... the, the, the cow-human hybrid... Oh, admixed embryos. ...consultation. Yeah. And I felt very strongly that the audience was being manipulated to, for the heifer to achieve a certain outcome, that that would be accepted. I felt very much against it and felt very cross that we were being manipulated. I'll come but back to that. that was just my feeling, my personal feeling, and it may not have been what was happening. If you were to ask a question in um, different countries, you'd probably get different answers. So let's say um, the government consultation, the answer is negative, but Switzerland says you can. Does that mean you emigrate to Switzerland and do your work there because that's where you can? Yeah. In the same way, if you've got a um, grandfather who's really terminally ill, you go to Switzerland, you go to Dignitas and uh, so on. Good question. This is kind of Marilyn's point as well, because during the GM debate, I really did feel manipulated, ironically, because the debate was framed in scientific terms, when for me it was actually political. I was far less worried about the science of the crops than I was the consequence of sterile crops on farmers and the, the effects of monopoly capitalism. So my, uh, my immediate reaction is no to most GM crops, but I have celiac. Somebody wants to genetically engineer gluten-free wheat, and I'm right there. Yeah. <laughs> Um, I sort of agree with a lot of the points that were made about um, the consultation and how you go about. I think, forgive my ignorance, but until a few months ago, I had no idea of what, who the HFEA were mm -hmm. and what they did. And I'm 19, and, and I'm probably within a very, very small percentage of 19-year-olds who know who the HFEA are, yet the sort of decisions that you're making are going to affect my generation and the generation younger. Mm -hmm. And also I've got a question about selecting for disabilities in <laughs> embryos and what your sort of stances are, are on that. And, Very interesting yeah. question. Mm -hmm. um, can we, oh, Miriam, go on, you, take, you have a crack and all. Yeah, I just have to come back on that point as well. I think that the HFEA is really not um, publicly representative, like the mm -hmm. kind of decisions that it makes. And like consider, uh, concerning the mitochondrial issue, um, I really am still very unclear about why the, H why the HFEA opposes um, research the, uh, solutions for mitochondrial disease, and I think that there needs to be much more public awareness. Sorry, why the HFEA opposes this? 
No, um, the issue surrounding mitochondrial disease. Yes. Um, I, I'm, like, very unclear on what the HFEA's stance is. Oh, the... it's not meant to have one is the short answer, whether it does or not. But um, I think, like, in these kind of issues, there yeah. needs to be far more public representation and awareness because, um, like this lady just said, there really is really not uh, publicly representative. Okay. Um, on a very, very similar topic, to be honest, um, just how, how do you go about engaging the proper members of the public? Because mm. I know in exactly the same way as the gentleman Stuart as it said with, earlier about speaking to his mum, I can have entire conversations with my family at the moment about things that they just stare blankly at me and go, yes, Catherine. Um, so how do you engage the rest of society in things that are important but they don't necessarily realise affect them in different ways? Um, what do you think about, um, on the democracy point, what do you think about the often chilling and anti-progressive effect that the attempt to democratise science has on the scientific discourse. I mean, we've seen this with the drugs debate, for example, where people's religious and often obscene personal motivations are allowed to affect public policy instead of the pure, brutal science. OK. Um, I'm going to ask the panel... I'm so sorry anyone who's not been taken. We're going to go and have a drink after this. We're going to continue it informally. Uh, Cherry-pick what you'd like to respond to, including from your fellow panellists in the audience... Uh, and give us your concluding thought for the day. Um, I'll start with you, Ganesh. Hmm, okay. So why do it? I mean, why, why do we have doctors? Why do we have medicine? Because we're not happy with being unwell. Or why do we fund research into debilitating disease? Because we don't wish to be unwell. We want to fix it we want to get rid of it there's no one on earth who would ever say what i'm really looking forward to is turning i don't know 65 and developing dementia at some you know obscenely young age or something like that so why why would we not use all the information that we have to be able to better humanity essentially and i think if we were able to control if we were able to create gametes outside of the body in a dish or whatever, put them back into the human uh, after fertilisation or even just create them, the, the stem cells in a dish and put them into a human and it would seem almost like it was completely normal. Why, why, would, we, why would we not use that for, for the better? Well, because people, because people suffer, because people lose the ability to have children, because this... this there's this whole dichotomy between germline and soma, where the germline is the thing that must continue and the soma is the disposable part. So hu humankind is, you know, the whole evolution thing is what's, you know, we, we've been pushed through evolution because the genes have got to survive, etc., etc. <laughs> Just one thing about the engagement point that was made. I think the thing about the germline or, like, reproduction is pretty much anybody will have an opinion on that. If you said to them, well, you don't need to worry about it, as a woman who, in science, for example, I, I have to consider the fact that if I push my uh, career too hard, I might miss my window of opportunity and find myself, you know, struggling away in the IVF clinics where I've worked uh, to, to have my own children. I mean, these are things that will liberate and free and... Yeah, I think it's a positive thing. So we have okay. someone who thinks it's incumbent on, on their opponent to say, you know, why should we do this? And one who says it's incumbent to say, why shouldn't you? Uh, which is very interesting. Robin wants to come in here. Can you combine it with summing up, Robin? I know it's a tall order. Oh, gosh. Uh, lots of points to make. Um, one reason why, why germ cells in vitro... Well, it's actually several. There's lots. Um, but, uh, uh, and this relates to something that you said earlier. The ability to make uh, gametes in vitro... Um, is incredibly important for research 
research into contraception, genetic abnormalities, fertility. All those things it's important for, which is, so doing this, you like, is sort of ethics-free, the ability to be able to do it. Whether you then license it for fertility treatment, mm. that's when you have the ethics issues. And there are reasons for doing that for young girls or young boys, pre-puberty, yeah, you will want so. to do it because you, there's no way of preserving their sperm or eggs at the moment. There are um, people who may have been subject to some environmental insult which has led to the uh, uh, destruction of their germ cells. I don't know, Chernobyl. I mean, who knows? There's all sorts of reasons mm-hmm. why you might want to, might want to do it. Um, I was asked about what was, well, what was the yuck factor to do with the mitochondrial transfer thing. Well, I don't think in terms of just, you know, I think it's um, my personal view is that faced with the choice of, of um, you know, having a child born with a severe disease or doing this procedure, I think personally, I think it's, um, you know, you should go ahead with it. However, this is a form of germline genetic engineering. And that's the issue that needs to be out there in the public and the public to think about because a lot of people are going to have an instant reaction against doing Mm. this type of procedure. It is completely different, the procedures, the techniques used, and that's why, again, it's important to let everyone know what's the technology being used. So any technology can be used for good or bad. Fire can be used to cook meals or burn people. Um, You've got to be understand the technology to be able to regulate it correctly. The technology used to do the mitochondrial swapping um, uh, is completely different from the sorts of technology that you would use to manipulate genes in the genome. And so understanding that the methodology is really important. So people should be less scared if they understand the methods used for mitochondrial disease that we're ever going to go down the route of germline engineering of uh, genes within the nucleus. I agree with the comment there about the HFEA's um, public consultation on the human-animal thing. It wasn't done well, but we've learned from that because it wasn't done well. And so I think currently the way that things are being done is getting much, much better. Gluten-free wheat, that's a perfect example of one reason why you have a public consultation because members of the public come up with ideas. They say, well, hey, if you were to do this, I'm all for it. So it's trawling for ideas beyond those, you know, people wearing white coats, uh, scientists like me, um, ethicists, politicians. You get members of the public coming up with interesting good ideas. So that's one reason why uh, everyone should be involved. Thank you, Robin. When people involved in the, in the, in the techniques behind um, the, the mitochondrial exchange techniques uh, said, oh, shall we call it germline uh, genetic engineering, uh, Robin, to his critics, said, yes, we should say that's what it is because it is. And uh, similarly, the, the Nuffield Council on Bioethics report on the ethics of these techniques concluded uh, that it was. Um, so, um, David, you impugned the independence of these uh, institutions? Uh, yeah, well, let's see what the result is. Um, but I, I think that there are various forces in, the, in, in, uh, in this country. I think with regard to germline genetic engineering, for, for me, it's also a question of eugenics. It's also a question of, of, of selecting genetic 
features for the for the future. I think that we have a, we have a kind of double history in this in this country of eugenics. We're the first. I mean, there, there, it was a, in, a term invented by an Englishman, and the first and the first uh, conference was in England, and and we we were very strongly in favour of eugenics. But we didn't actually go through some of the down the path of of sterilisation that other mm. countries did. Partly because we also had people who were very strongly opposed to it, and we also have have movements with, uh, and the disability rights movement, which is also very strong in this country, and we have different kinds of cultural forces. I, I, I understand why people are concerned about ethics being hijacked by one group or, or another group and a, about the suspicion of ethical expertise. I think ethical ex- expertise is, is a very problematic notion. I think that it, it's, it's much uh, better to think of the non-expertise in ethics, the sort of shared non-expertise. Uh, uh, what's the difference between ethics and morals? Morals is just ethics in Latin, and, 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 and ethics is just morals in Greek. Ethos mores. It comes from the same root, and the same root because it, it's concerned with, it's concerned with human, the, the right human behaviour, and concern with right human behaviour can both be uh, a good thing to protect people and it can also be uh, a bad thing to, 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 to restrict people. And, and, and I think it's right, whatever you call it, whether you call it morals or you call it ethics, it's good to, to think of, of, of how the word is being used and to, and to broaden the number of people who are bringing their human experience to it. I mean it as a compliment when I say, uh, David, that I consider you a philosopher, not an ethicist. <laughs> uh, Ken, can you conclude? Yeah, when Ganesh was talking about what will happen if if these new procedures or, or developments are unconscionably delayed, you know, that somebody will come up and say, we've done it in mice, we've done it in rats, we've done it in chimps, and we've done it in horses. I thought you was about to finish by saying, and now they're doing it in Korea. Because, <laughs> <laughs> because I think that's the answer to the, uh, uh, the gentleman at the back who raised the question about the stultifying effect of democracy on scientific development. And I think that's a genuine issue. When I, when I was um, I re- recently asked to draft a comic about stem cells, explaining really why we have the arguments about them and how we conduct them and so on, and I did it in a very, a very moderate, open, open-minded and, um, you know, what's the word, balanced style, I hope. But that's what I was aiming for, and it got sort of vetted by various people smarter and more knowledgeable than I am, and all came through all right. But when I was doing the research for it, I, we, we were we are allowed to speak with a, one of the real prominent scientists and uh, physicians, a pioneer in applying stem cell therapies. And after he had told us the trials and tribulations that he has gone through as a result of regulation mindlessly applied on a European scale, the horrendous delay and expense and the horrendous human cost for many individuals that he could have treated but aren't. What I was actually burning to write was a libertarian rant, which, of course, I didn't. Um, But someday I will write that libertarian rant. And I think in the meantime, the fact that there is international competition does kind of bring us back to reality on on this issue. We, We can consult in this country, but somebody's going to go ahead and do it in China. Can we have a big round of applause for our speakers?